Hey folks, this is Joe Kim from the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. In this episode, we wanted to give Eric Kress an opportunity to rant about a number of topics he's been feeling angry about. Specifically, one, the Apple IDFA apocalypse, two, why tech companies feel in games, and three, geopolitical shenanigans. This podcast was recorded for the DevCom conference held last week and was hosted by Chris Hewish, president of payments company Exola. So coming up, the deconstructor of fun Rantcast, Eric Kress Unchained, coming up right after this commercial break. So stay tuned. This podcast episode is brought to you by Iron Source. Iron Source are not a spinach-based nutrition company, as their name might suggest, but are actually a game tech company which builds technologies that help you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets Iron Source apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super efficient way. So whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, IronSource is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor of Fun are giant fans of IronSource because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So we suggest that you head on over to ironsource.com, ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. Folks, most mobile advertisers are increasingly aware of the dangers of app install fraud. In fact, global financial exposure to app install fraud in the first half of 2020 was $1.6 billion. And even though the mobile ad industry has grown exponentially to defend itself properly against ad fraud, the potential amount of damage is still extremely high and fraudsters will always want a piece of that pie. Now, fraud methods are constantly evolving and adapting to solutions in the market. Still, staying protected and applying sophisticated anti-fraud solutions are very much a necessity for all marketers. As you all know, our good partner AppSlyer offers super robust fraud protection, making sure you're not paying for that bogus traffic. AppSlyer is also perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile, a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive that marketing success. And listen, it's not only us at here at Deconstructor of Fun raving about AppSlyer. Playrix, Tencent, Playtica, Square Enix, Huge Games, all of these companies and many more are using AppsFlyer to boost their business. So go to appsflyer.com and get yourself attribution and fraud protection you can trust. Hi, I'm Chris Hewish, president of Ixola, the video game business engine. And I'd like to welcome you to this special Deconstructor of Fun Rantcast, Eric Crest Unchained. I'm joined today by two of the most influential and well-informed people in the video game industry, Eric Kress and Joe Kim. Would you guys like to take a minute and introduce yourselves? Sure, Eric, you want to start since you're the guest of honor here? <laughs> sure. I, I'm a co-host of uh, the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. Um, I also uh, have my own consultancy group, which provides consulting services primarily to financial stakeholders, but also to industry. Um, and I focus primarily on console mobile um, space, but also a lot of technology. Cool, and as for me, I am uh, also co-host on the Deconstructor Fund podcast with Eric. I'm here to egg on Eric and to provide some of my own views as well, but I also am a, a co-founder in a new startup in a mobile game studio working on a free-to-play shooter, and before that was in games publishing as well as games development for, for about 10 years. 
All right. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. And for our audience, if you haven't heard of the Deconstructor of Fun podcast, then I highly recommend that you check it out. And if you have listened to their podcast, then you're likely aware of how enthusiastic Eric gets about certain topics and how Joe tends to keep him from going too far overboard. <laughs> I don't know about that last part. <laughs> <laughs> well, today, you know, today is, uh, is unique because the chains are off and we've invited Eric to let loose on some of the topics that he feels particularly passionate about. And Joe, you know, this is your chance today to pile on or offer counterpoints as the conversation unfolds. And, uh, you know, today's conversation, it should be entertaining and educational. We're going to talk about three main topics, the pending Apple IDFA apocalypse, why tech companies fail in games, and lastly, how geopolitical shenanigans are impacting the global games industry. So Eric, Joe, before we jump in, um, do you guys have anything you'd like to share or should we just buckle up and hit the gas? Well, I would like to offer one little caveat here. <clears throat> you know, a lot of the things I talk about on the, on the podcast and here are lots of hearsay, lots of secondhand stories. A lot of these things I have not experienced myself. So, you know, my job as an analyst is basically to tech, take disparate information from all different sources and try to come up with theses and ideas around the names and how, why, why I think they will do well or not do well. And that involves a lot of the policies and procedures and, you know, strategies of some of the bigger names like Apple and Google, et cetera. But because I'm not in those meetings, I am, I am shooting from the cheap seats. And uh, so I just want to be clear that some of the information is a little bit, you know, not a hundred percent fully necessarily accurate, but hopefully directionally it's accurate. Otherwise I wouldn't be very good at my job. All right, fair enough. So why don't we jump right in and uh, tackle the first topic, the Apple IDFA apocalypse. I think as many people in our audience know, uh, next month when iOS 14 releases, we'll soon have a new world with respect to performance marketing on iOS post IDFA deprecation. Eric, you've been a vocal critic of this move by, by Apple and you know, would love to understand what are the issues you see in this move and what instead do you think Apple should have done if not this? Well, to start with, I'm a huge fan of Apple. Like I have spent thousands and thousands of dollars on their products. There's no doubt. iPhone, iPad, iMac, MacBook, whatever. Um, and there's no doubt that they make the best consumer products in the market. As a consumer, they are like 10 out of 10. And, but however, as a publisher and a partner, they are horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Um, Let's, th let's start with the current app store. You know, it is an abomination, right? They need to fix discovery. They need to get rid of all this editorial nonsense. They need a better recommendation algorithm. You know, they have splash screens that only show two games at a time. The Today Splash is a page is a joke. You know, 12 news stories before you click through to actually and, and swipe down to find the first app. I mean, the whole purpose of a store is to promote discovery and reduce customer friction. And that is the exact opposite of what the new re redesign of the store is. And if you look at like competitors like Netflix, you know, you boot up the app and immediately you're in business. You log in with your custom profile that is uniquely identifies and, and recommends, you know, five or six ideas from the get-go. There's no editorial. You move down with one swipe and you have access to 20 other pieces of content um, that is uniquely... Uh, geared towards you. And 
all these shows are based upon recommended based on prior viewing based on trending shows and recommendation based on other things that you've watched in the in the past right so it's really not that hard you know it's not like reinventing the wheel and i what i would say is like why wouldn't apple just stop wasting time on apple arcade and start working on fixing the store like i think that would be a lot better use of the time but later on you know i think we'll actually talk about this a bit is that apple really doesn't care right they're that they're not in the business to sell apps they're in the business to sell hardware and i think that's relatively apparent by their actions so this le really, you know leads us under the idfa issue <clears throat> you know i am not a big fan of advertising particularly in games uh and I spent most of my career trying to avoid learning anything about advertising because I just, there's something dirty about it. It rubs me the wrong way. And from an interactive perspective, I just don't like how it interrupts uh, content in general. But I've spent this past month or so diving into understanding this IDFA issue, much to my chagrin, um, and trying to understand how it's going to impact the publishers going forward. Um, first and foremost, like IDFA is kind of the backbone of performance user acquisition for the past, what, four years? And by removing it without an alternative is a big F you to all publishers that basically have built their business around this hyper-targeting. Luckily, it's pretty clear that Google is not going down this road anytime soon. So at least half of the market or roughly half of the market is gonna be okay. But this change kind of really sets us back on, on iOS to 2012, 2014 era, where UA teams were optimizing around broader reach, more of a shotgun approach and less targeting. And why it's such a problem for UA teams for some of the publishers is that they've been building these systems and personnel over the past six years around hyper-targeting. So if you look at games, the top games that have released since 2016, the majority of them had been scaled with this type of UA spend, right? With the exception of like Supercell, you know, Fire Emblem, and some of the more broad market games, like Guns of Glory, Empires and Puzzles, King of Avalon, Final Fantasy, Rise of Kingdoms, Lords Mobile, Marvel Strike Force, Star Trek, etc all have been built around UA optimization. So the most successful games in the industry that have been released since 2016 just have been using, leveraging these, the IDFA and performance marketing. But we've been here before, right? This is very similar to what happened with Facebook did during the gaming, Facebook gaming days. And it was actually more egregious in, in some ways. Facebook, Facebook basically built its business, built its network on the virality of games, Zynga, Playdom, Playfish, et cetera, all had huge businesses on Facebook. And almost overnight, they pushed down the 30% down the throats of the publishers, squeezing profitability. But more even devastating than that was the removal of the virality mechanisms, obviously with the exception of Zynga, which had favored nation statics, which is even more diabolical back, back in the day. So Zynga really was the only one that survived this quote unquote Ragnarok, right? But ultimately, the business went from 10 billion down to 1.5 billion, right? I'm not really quite sure of those numbers, but it's something to, of that scale. Now, I am not saying that this is going to happen to the iOS gaming stuff. But what I am saying is that Apple doesn't care and they are not focused on helping publishers build their businesses. And for that, I'll let J Joseph take on from here. Yeah, so I mean... I don't think there's much else more to egg Eric on about here, but I will say that the the part that that I would probably pile on here is that there's just uncertainty with respect to actually what is actually going to happen with IDFA deprecation in iOS 14. And so I would say that based upon what we know though, I, I would say that in terms of the overall objective, right? So user privacy is a noble pursuit. And I think that 
Unfortunately, like knowing what user came from what campaign is basically sort of fundamental to any kind of performance marketing, right? And so I think that while it's good to protect user privacy, like having that as a fundamental mechanism is, is kind of basic and something that I think that we're going to need. And so while I can see the case for data not to be collected and having game companies send data back to, let's say, Facebook or whoever to build value profiles on user IDs is one thing. But to me, assigning users to campaigns is not really that threatening. And so based upon what we know, if, if what some of the you know, UA experts are saying is true, then basically what Apple is basically saying is give advertisers money and get an install count. And that's basically all you get. Do so you then gonna have to guess if you made money off your ad campaigns or not? At least that's, again, that's a current interpretation. And by the way, sure, there's lots of talk about workarounds via fingerprinting or using SDKs to get around Apple, but the policy language from Apple is pretty clear. So I do expect some people will try to black ops this or you know, operate in a gray zone, but ultimately you gotta think Apple lays a smackdown and you know, eventually on anyone who's trying to do black ops or, or run in the gray zone. So just getting back, if we live in a world where you have no idea where users in your app are coming from, you know, it's basically hard to make a business case for ads. You gotta think, therefore, that performance advertising on iOS at least slows down because running, the more campaigns you run in parallel, the less you know where users are coming from. And especially with games that have organics, then it's very, very difficult to really attribute and understand if your ads are actually performing or not. And so at the same time, the other problem, if we're interpreting things correctly, is that Apple is exempting their own ad network from the same data limitations. And so this would smack of very abusive monopolistic behavior, right? And so while you know, the current ambitions seem to be contained to Apple search ads, so only ads as part of the Apple App Store, it's still pretty unfair. So I would personally be surprised if, maybe not the US, but if the EU doesn't jump all over this. And so again, this is based upon current assumptions. And now it would be a lot better if, probably my biggest beef is re really just Apple has not been very clear in terms of what all the implications are. But um, in terms of what Apple should have done, I do think that Apple should, what they at least should do is at least allow campaign attribution via IDFV. So user privacy is maintained across apps and to not allow data sharing between the apps and back to an advertiser. But you can at least still get campaign ROAS. That's, in my opinion, what Apple should do. All right. Well, that's good. I mean, that's a good overview. And I know, you know, you, you've both talked about how important this has been to the industry and how companies have built entire teams and processes around maximizing you know, the use of IDFA for uh, further advertising. So, you know, many developers, publishers, even service, service providers have built teams around this. So who do you think coming out of it are going to be the biggest losers as a result of this change? And conversely, do you see anybody winning from this? Like what kind of impact is this going to have on the, on the personnel and the processes that are already out there? Yeah, I mean, this is the, really the main question I need to answer because I need to how, know how it impacts the publicly traded names like EA, uh, Activision, you know, King, uh, Zynga, and Glue, obviously. So 
that's kind of what I, my focus has been to try to figure out what it means. And there's a lot we don't know. And there's a lot of different voices out there like Eric Seifert and uh, Nibu and others that are kind of on different spectrums on this. But to go back to what um, Joseph said really quickly. So if they, so part of my thesis is that Apple doesn't care about advertising or they don't like advertising and they don't like gaming per se. And so if they were to actually execute on ads for their own network, I guess Apple search ads would be okay. But if they were actually to create an ad network on their own using, <laughs> I mean, that would be just gruesome, right? If they were to use uh, IDFA for their own ads, that'd be, that'd be even more. I, I, I don't think that's where they're headed is what I'm trying to say on that one, to, just to be clear. But if that happens, then that would be terrible. Um, so what I, what I, I, my whole point is that Apple clearly has different priorities than gaming, right? They, they have much of a bigger, broader strategy of building more privacy protection for their user base. And honestly, I don't necessarily think this is a bad idea for Apple, right? I think it's a great strategy for them. I just think it's terrible for their partners and the publishers. Um, so for me, I think the biggest wins are the big, right? Anybody that has existing infrastructure and support and games that are in the marketplace are probably okay, right? So uh, companies like Supercell um, and Supercell and uh, even EA and some of the bigger publishers, they'll go king, they'll be okay, right? But I think this is absolutely terrible for the small guys. Anybody that's up and coming, trying to release new products, trying to scale products, you know, they're gonna have tough time scaling and adjusting to the new world. And they're gonna have to invest in all kinds of infrastructure that they just don't have, you know? And so I think in some ways, Apple is destroying the small with these moves. And, uh, and I don't think this, I think the smaller struggles, smaller publishers were struggling before. Um, and then hyper casual, I think they have to lose. I, I'm a little bit confused as to some people are saying, you know, it's a total clusterfuck of an industry to begin with, uh, but they must be devastated by this because their advertising revenue has got to be cut by half in terms of value, right? Um, now, some people are saying, and this is kind of what Zynga was doing with their acquisition, is that building up a network can help your IDFB uh, and, and could be help, help kind of um, eliminate the, some of the risks associated with pulling IDFA. But if your primary revenue stream is ad revenue, I got to imagine this could, you're going to take a massive hit. Um, I also think the biggest negatives are for the ad networks, right? Anybody that relied on IDFA for targeting, they're hosed, right? MMPs, absolutely destroyed. Adjust, Singular, Apps Flyer. I don't know how they adjust in a post-IDFA world. Maybe they just all focus on Google. I don't know. This, that seems to be troubling to me. Um, but the second biggest losers, and the one that kind of impacts my publishers a little bit more, is uh, the big core game publishers. You know, those, that list of games that I said before? Anybody that was doing super high, hyper-targeting games are screwed, right? Fun Plus, Scopely, Lilith, IgG, NetEase, Machine Zone. You know, they were all relied upon hyper-targeting and UA arbitrage to scale their games. You know, this would also include Zynga, Small Giant, and Graham. And there's some sophisticated groups here, you know, and they will probably figure out ways of adjusting, but I don't think they'll ever have the same uh, efficacy as they had before. It just doesn't seem possible on Apple, right? You know, but I'm also hearing that they're going to go even more nuclear, right? They're not, they're not talking about like stopping here. They may re remove Google login, Facebook login, limiting IP tracking, like all these things are TBD, but Apple's kind of laid down the gauntlet. Like if they're pulling the IDFA, there's no stopping them really at this point, right? In terms of being vicious and, 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 you know, reducing the efficacy of all the game companies that have kind of built their network. Um, so again, I, I think the biggest uh, winners here are likely EA um, and King 
and Supercell, for instance, exactly, which rely upon big brands to get their games out there. Um, here's the irony with EA, is EA literally has not made investments in UA or mobile for the last four or five years, right? And so this change actually puts us right back into 2012 and 2013, where EA still is. So they will, nothing changes for them, right? They're still relying upon big brands that get the downloads and, and you know, hopefully make some money. So they have no hyper-targeting or UA thing to speak of. So they're actually an okay, you know? Companies like uh, Rovio also will probably be okay, um, although they have changed a little bit more to targeting recently. Look, I guess at the end of the day, like what people have to understand is Apple doesn't care about gaming, right? They have bigger fish to fry, right? Some people are speculating that they want to get into healthcare, which is an absolutely huge market, right? Games is kind of just a means to an end, right? Build their empire, you know, and they've constantly done what's best for selling hardware and not gaming. And everyone kind of in mobile understands this, right? You know, the redesign of the store was a train wreck for everybody in terms of, uh, of, of you know, organics and, and, and publishing, right? They push premium content on the store constantly since the beginning. Like no one buys premium content. It represents like 1% of the revenue, yet it, it's like 30 or 40% of the featuring. It's ridiculous, right? Apple Arcade, most ridiculous idea ever. Like people that selling a subscription to games that no one cares about, it's just it's stupid, right? And then metal, requiring metal. I, I still, to this day, I mean, I understand why they do it, but metal was like a complete fuck you to the publishers, right? Because ultimately driving metal is irrelevant for making money on mobile, right? And the only reason they wanted that is to promote hardware obsolescence, right? To build more games that are more uh, cumbersome for the hardware so that you buy more freaking hardware. But the, the fundamental thing is that we didn't, people didn't care about, don't care about fidelity on mobile. The most profitable games on mobile are not high fidelity games. So, and I think the big thing here is my takeaway is this, is like, how can they really justify the 30% anymore, right? I don't even think they deserve the 30% before. And I've kind of gone back and forth with Sweetie on this, you know, back and, you know, I think they provided a huge service to us. But now, now that they're pulling away of effectively targeting their audience, like that makes their platform even less valuable, right? So I think like if they were to reduce the fee, because they're likely squeezing a lot of the publishers on the margin because of uh, UA costs are probably going to go up and LTVs are going to go down for publishers, they should be reducing the fee that publishers are paying because they're frankly, their, their network and their uh, system is not nearly as, as, as viable as it used to be. So what do you think, Joe? Yeah. So, I mean, definitely agree. I think we've talked about this on the podcast quite a bit, but certainly, you know, in terms of like the two ends, right. In terms of like the hyper casual on the broad audience side and the admon side. And then on the other side, highly targeted wells on the super core side, both should get hit any game really where, you know, you've got your, we've talked about this before. You've got your pair buckets, the, the games that can't shift their pair buckets down are going to get hit. And so who the winner would be based upon the kind of two ends losing are going to be the guys in the middle, the folks that have broader converting games and uh, less ad-based games basically in the middle. And so, you know, I think that for the companies that can optimize monetization, again, go for a broader conversion. We've talked about this many times before, uh, lower RPU, higher conversion. Those are going to be the, the kind of winners in the market moving forward, at least on iOS. 
I would say the one pushback I have from what Eric is saying has to do with the small publishers. So again, this is kind of unclear because we're not quite sure how all of the IDFA stuff plays out, but there is a current thesis basically that you get alpha from some kind of data infrastructure advantage, right? And so, so this is a thesis around why the big guys win. And it's premised on the notion that you build some kind of super machine learning algorithm that does probabilistic attribution. But to me, that sounds a lot like fingerprinting, which is basically a no-no. And basically how you actually build that data infrastructure to do that, still not clear. So the view that you can still do performance marketing like you used to, but it's probabilistic and enabled by this huge investment in data scientists and data infrastructure, that's, that thesis I'm not so sure about, right? And and so I'm going to say my outlook on this thesis currently is that it's, in my opinion, probably not going to work out. So then assume for a minute I'm right. And then if you trace route this through, if this thesis doesn't play out, you may actually have the opposite effect. The, the playing field actually gets leveled for small developers. Um, and from all I've seen and heard, you, in my personal experience, you actually get more alpha from publishers with like a digit a data engineer than you do with like a whole army of phds like right so you want that data engineer that really understands the game that person is going to get you more alpha than this room full of phds that are doing all sorts of fancy stuff random forest this and that you know evol you know genetic algorithms all this other fancy stuff right i just haven't seen them perform that well in, in the past and so Again, we'll see how this thesis plays out, but I, you know, really, we're going to have to see what, what happens. But my guess would be that the, you know, the whole, you know, M and A, and you know, it's going to be Armageddon for small guys. I don't personally see that playing out. Wait, wait, but you're just saying you're basically. It seems like you're confirming what I'm saying. Like the small publishers do not have the resources or capability of hiring PhDs at all. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying like you don't get that advantage. But if you're recreating the graph and re recreating fidelity. No, no, but I'm saying like probabilistic attribution sounds a lot like fingerprinting to me. And then how would you even do that? I'm saying it probably doesn't work. Oh, I see what you're saying. So ultimately, okay, I get it. I get it. But yeah, but that's in like a longer term thesis, but like for the medium term, short to medium term, the small guys just won't be able to be competitive, right? Well, we don't know. We don't, we're, we're, we're not sure. Well, also half the market is going to be still based on performance, right? targeting and sure but then that's business as usual right? yeah so on the google side it's business as usual on the ios side it, it could actually cut either way now the other the other thesis here is the thesis that you brought up eric which is okay so you have you're a big publisher you have access to a shit ton of idfvs can you still continue to market against performance against that set of idfvs that you used to be able to I don't know. We, we don't know. If you can, sure, you have some advantage. So yeah, that piece, yeah. I, I, I've been, I just was talking about this a little bit earlier. It's like the one thing that people are going to say is the cross-promo capabilities and using yeah. IDFVs to sell different products. But every data point that I've ever heard of is, oh, and this is in your notes too, but cross-promo <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. cross, cross doesn't work, right? Cross-promo only works within the same genre is, is the, basically the th thing I've been, so you're not going to sell a strategy game in, in a candy crush, right? It just doesn't work that way. And so yeah. 
that works and it's a good talking point for a lot of the big publishers, but ultimately I don't know how effective that's going to be either. So Yeah, so I would sorry. absolutely agree with you, Eric. Like IDFV could potentially get you some alpha. Now there's, there's two aspects to that, right? Which one, which is, can you continue to market against that audience as you used to be able to? And two, can you cross promote that audience? And so I agree with you in the general case, cross promo is not usually that effective. Now there are specific cases like within the same genre as you point out or other cases where it can work, but it's, it's more of a special case rather than the general case. So for me, I guess, you know, I don't see that part of it, but that's, that, that's what I would say. So generally speaking, you know, we'll see what happens. You can make an argument. I guess my point is you can make an argument either way. The big guys win, or maybe on conversely, the small guys win. It would just be great if we had better guidance from Apple. So it'd be more clear who actually wins or not. Yeah. I guess the last point I want to make on this before we move on is that I think Apple's actions speak louder than their words on this. And that yeah. if they're moving forward with this idea of faith thing and kind of doing it in a way that's unceremonious and pretty quick, you know, like when they had to deal with the uh, European regula regulations, they gave them a year, publishers a year and a half to get this done. There seems to be some, something driving them to push this forward. I think the biggest concern I have with with what Apple is doing is that they start removing other things like Facebook login, like Google login, like the ability to fingerprint using IP, et cetera. Like where there's no stopping them at this point, right? They could do whatever the hell they want, right? In this perspective. And so that's what scares me is that like, they, like this is not gonna end here. And so if they go for more and more privacy and more and more like consumer focused, you know, activities, then there's no stopping them because they're preempting what is likely to come down from any type of uh, privacy thing that's going to happen on the government side. So right. and, anyway, that's my biggest concern is that we're not, this isn't the end, right? This is, this and is Eric, the I think that may be a good way of thinking about it, which is what is Apple's intent? Whereas it may not be hundred percent clear what's happening in terms of the current policy that what they intend is likely going to play out over time. And so to your point about removing Facebook login, why would they do that? It's because if you have Facebook SDK on a phone, you can actually bypass IDFA. You can actually still attribute. And so if Apple is serious enough, they're going to be like, you know what, we're going to take away the mechanisms by which advertisers can, can circumvent us. Yeah. And that's my thesis. I, I don't think this has anything to do with gaming at all. I think they're just going after Google and Facebook and all these big companies. It's like this big war between companies. And maybe that's an obvious statement for a lot of people out there. But I think that's like the context in which we're talking about. And they are circumventing or they're preempting the moves by the government. And in doing so, uh, making people feel like they are, you know, the benevolent technology company. And so you see Kara Swisher and all Verge guys always talking about how great Apple is. Meanwhile, they're basically sacrificing all of their publishers and partners in order to like maintain their consumer advocacy. Right. And it's just it's it's dirty, dirty, but it's it's good for them long term. Like I think if I was an Apple shareholder, which I am, um, I'd be super happy. But as a publisher and a developer, I mean, you know, buyer beware. You know, this is what's what's happening. So I think that's kind of a longer term um, possibilities around what's happening out there. All right. Well, that's. I mean, that certainly sounds apocalyptic. You know, when you play out what those changes could be. And, uh, you know, I love the fact you're putting some game theory to it, like trying to understand what is the, the end goal or the motivation for Apple and how that applies beyond just this looming change. Um, 
you know, this also gets us into just the whole concept of tech companies and what they're doing in video games, or not just video games, but the gaming industry as a whole. I would love to get your thoughts, you know, around that. We've had a number of high profile failures by big tech companies trying to enter gaming, you know, whether it's Google Stadia, Amazon with huge investments in gaming over the years, including Crucible, which really had, you know, was a bit of a disappointment recently. Great team, but just didn't didn't live up to what it needed to be. And then, of course, the aforementioned Apple with with their arcade initiative. So, really, why do you think big tech companies fail? What what is keeping them back when they try to get into games and their gaming initiatives? Yeah, I mean, this has been something I've been tracking for the last twenty years. I mean, it's always been kind of an absolute clusterfuck in terms of of technology, but also the big media companies. I mean, there's been so many failures of media companies to get into interactive. Fox Interactive, CBS Interactive, Disney Interactive was like, I think they failed three or four times over the years. Um, and now they're just a licensor. Uh, LucasArts, oh my God, there wasn't any bigger train wreck than LucasArts um, from that perspective. Uh, and I'll probably tell you a little bit of story later. But I think, you know, the fundamental issues here are really, one is conflicting priorities across the organization. And there's no better example of that than Amazon. So I'm not going to go too far deep into this because we'll be here for a while. But if you think about Amazon, they have Twitch, Amazon Prime, Game Studios, Lumberyard, and AWS. Like, what group do you prioritize? Like, you know, it's like they're, they're, the, the strategies are not mutually, are mutually exclusive to some degree, right? Like, for instance, do you require all your game studios to use Lumberyard? Well, what if the games don't want to use Lumberyard? It's not the optimal engine. Do you integrate with Twitch? Well, why, how, what if Twitch doesn't give a crap and they don't want anything to do with your game, right? Or, you know, because Twitch's primary focus is selling as much Prime as possible because that's how they get paid as an organization. And how does AWS fit into this overall business? You know, it gets freaking complicated and it's impossible to bring all these you know, egos and, and, and different strategies into one place and to come up with a cohesive strategy. It's, it's a, I think it is absolutely impossible. Um, and I think anybody that's worked there over the last six years will probably agree with me. Um, the second thing is consulting. And I give consultants a hard time, you know, Bain, McKenzie, you know, these brilliant MBAs that are probably double, double E majors at, at MIT and Harvard. But as the, as the industry grows, we get more and more of these consultants coming in and try to, that really don't fundamentally understand games. And they come in and give these advice that makes total sense on paper and that any MBA from the top 10 schools can probably put a PowerPoint presentation together, but they make no sense from the logistics side of actually what, how it makes to make games. And the biggest example of that, which I'm not gonna go into right now is Blizzard and what's going on with that studio in which they've lost every single creative that mattered at that company. Um, so that's another thing is I think these consultants who are really assuming that this business is different than it is. How about that? Let's move on. <laughs> the <laughs> that's other been an assumption that's tripped up a lot of people over the years. <laughs> yes, yes. And ironically, I'm in a consultant, so maybe I should shut up, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that hypocritical notion later. Um, also, the other thing with technology companies I've noticed is that there's a lot of internal hiring going on, right? So they come up with an amazing idea like Stadia uh, with an amazing tech that's built by some of the smartest people on the world in technology. And then they build a team of product managers for features on Google email, 
right? Like, what the fuck does that have to do with video games, right? Like, you can't hire an expert, no matter how smart they are, to come up with a, a cohesive strategy for, for video games. It's just not possible, right? And so, now, I'm not saying there's not people at Google Stadia that are brilliant, right? There are great people out there that, that are from the video game space. Shit, they hired, like, the entire Sony team and many people from Microsoft, et cetera. But there's a lot of people in there that just don't understand the fundamentals of video games, and it's pretty obvious on how they've executed on Stadia. Um, the final one is bureaucracy uh, and approvals. Um, and I'm thinking more along um, like Disney, like more of the creative guys, right? You know, <clears throat> you would think that if you bring in house the game, video game, making video games, oh, approvals will be easy, right? Seamless, right? Because, you know, you're the same company. You're all working for, the, for <laughs> your best interests. But the reality is completely different. Like when you're internally, it's actually sometimes harder because you can push back because you're not necessarily a partner. You're just an internal, you know, junior person trying to get things approved. And I think the biggest example of that lately, uh, historically was Disney Infinity. Um, so like the notion was that the people that own the Aladdin IP were saying, we should be as strong as something like Marvel, right? Which is preposterous, right? But it's so political and, you know, it's so political that they, they, they push and push and push. So you end up having like a gazillion units of Aladdin out there that never sell, right? And so the collective um, business just falls apart because you're making millions of units that people don't want, right? And so that was kind of the, the uh, beginning of the end of that game. Um, so I think what happens is like big media in general, like their approach to gaming is kind of, combines all these issues in, in one. And, and the best example I have is LucasArts. Now, I'm not going to get all this right. And I'm sure there's people in the audience that are going to listen to me and say, you don't know what you're talking about. But I just want to be clear. I interviewed there a while ago, back in the EA days. And on paper, there is no better place on the planet to build interactive content when you think about it, right? I mean, it's a dream, right? You have like, you have like Star Wars, you have Lucas, you're at like, this beautiful ranch in, 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 in Marin. I mean, it is amazing. Like there's no better dream from these nerds that play video games like myself. Right. But the problem is, is that Lucas makes movies and television. Right. And, and what happened is he sees the success of something like call of duty. He's like, we need to be there. Like, this is what Lucas wants. I, we want you to be there. So they build up this exact team. They go around hiring all these people and the allure of the idea of working on a star Wars game interactive is too much. So people come in droves. Right. But ultimately they make television and they make movies and these people are the stewards of the IP. And so they don't give a shit about these dirty gaming projects. It doesn't fit within their rubric or their understanding of interactive. And there's also a huge creative conflict here. The skills of making movies and television are completely different from the skill set of making uh, video games. And so they don't understand that. And so when they're trying to get approvals for IPs and, you know, like for using the IP and doing it different ways, it's like the movies and TV creators hold everything up, right? And because they are the stewards of the IP, they are the ones with political power. So they're not going to be approving things that they think might hurt their beloved brand, right? And finally, the budget issue. But one thing I heard about that um, particular game, the uh, Force Unleashed, was that, you know, the original budget was 30 million. They went over and they kept on trying to add, get more and more money. But the problem is, is that, Again, the priority within the organization is TV and movies. And so they pull funding. They, they, 
they need funding somewhere else, they say, oh, well, we'll take 10 million from you. But that's obviously not a way it works in video games. And so that was the ultimate issue with Force Unleashed, the original and the second one, is they rushed it because of budgetary concerns and they didn't get the polish and, and, the, and the kind of uh, the way the game, what the, their vision for the game is because they just didn't invest in the money in order to make that happen. And actually they made the same exact mistake for the Unleashed 2. Um, now, of course, there's always both sides of the argument, they're probably really late, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but nonetheless, like it's just different priorities within the organization creates much more friction um, than is, is necessary to get a game done because there's already enough friction from game development as it is. Um, and the second one, I guess I would ask answer is the Apple Arcade fiasco, right? Um, now we don't know how well this is doing, but I imagine it's not doing well. Um, it's kind of a disaster from the start, right? It's clearly people that don't really understand game development are, are building a service because fundamentally premium doesn't work on mobile. And so building a subset of premium games on mobile makes no sense, right? I, it never made sense from the get-go. And what set me off on this one was this HSBC article that basically would say they would grow this business to 4.5 billion by 2024. And I'm just, I lost my mind. Like I thought I, thought I was in some twilight zone, you know? Because um, because we've already been here, right? The, the the difference between converting people from free to one is like impossible, right? One dollar, I mean, and so like the idea of people paying a premium price for a subscription for this 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 you know this crappy content is just ridiculous. Anyway, so ultimately. Um, I think what we found out was that what we thought out back in the in back when this first started that the 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 right strategy would have been to do something like HBO and create like you know a curated game approach where you create some amazing experiences or you partner with someone like like uh, Nintendo and have some anchor tenants that like can build a service that would be amazing right um, and be more like HBO and not Netflix but I think you still have issues there and conversion so again I think for Apple like they're they're, this is the conflicting priorities and their conflicting strategies. Like their strategy is not to build games. Their strategy is to build services that support their, their hardware, right? That's a completely different, different idea than, uh, than actually making compelling games that, that retain and keep people engaged for a long period of time. So what do you think, Joe? Yeah. So I, I guess I'll provide a little bit of a different perspective. I not, you know, I kind of agree with everything you've said, but I think from my perspective, there's really kind of three big reasons why big tech companies fail. And the first has to do with this kind of big difference between creators versus operators. And so a lot of the big tech guys operating big businesses are basically managing for stability, right? And so the kind of people you have overseeing an existing stable business fundamentally have a different set of skill sets than creators that are required to make a big hit new game, for example. And so you got these big tech execs that are all about politics, covering your ask, taking a shit ton of meetings and reading a lot of reports to sound smart and bullshit other execs, right? And But imagine those same skills apply to doing something real, like making a hit product. You see, those skills are actually useless to actual makers, right? And so my point here being that creators and operators are, again, fundamentally different. And I don't mean to throw a bunch of shade on operators, but that's just the truth of it. Like this zero to one problem of creating something big and new versus operating an existing business for stability are just different. 
And I would say it's even true, not only for tech, but within the games industry as well. And, you know, not to throw shade on Eric's favorite company, Zynga, but just to be clear, even with a company like Zynga, and I'm not, I'm not close to Zynga, I don't know exactly what happens, but you can imagine that on a live operated existing stable business type of game like Zynga Poker, you probably have a lot of execs, you probably have a lot of meetings, you probably have a lot of overhead that probably doesn't need to be there, right? And so I would say that that's kind of one. Second has to do with the nature of the product. And so I don't know how many of you are familiar with Christian Segerstraw, he was one of the you know, co-founders of Glue, current Super Evil Megacorp CEO, but one of the ways that he kind of described making a game that I thought was really smart was as kind of an alchemy of art, design, technology, culture, and business. Whereas if you think about tech products, I mean, tech products are more straightforward in nature. And so when you think about art, art's about a feeling. And so how do you make a product about a feeling or about emotion by people who are fundamentally grounded in metrics? And not only that, when you look at a lot of the tech companies, who are the product managers in tech? They're largely like X engineers, developers who became product managers, who basically are grounded in that engineering focused mindset, right? And so simply put, tech's ex expertise and the nature of the products in tech don't map well because of the complexity, because of the various inputs from different disciplines required, and because of the art aspect of the product. So that's not a great match for big tech companies. And finally, it's just culture and incentive, right? So large companies just by their nature don't have strong cultures and the workforce don't have the incentives in place to make hip products that may require a lot of intense work. So why would lower level workers that get paid peanuts like kill themselves for highly paid execs who really don't do anything? So, you know, for me, those are the three, three issues. Yeah, no, those are, I mean, those are right on, you know, and I think also you see a lot with these, whether it's a media company or a tech company, they also have a brand that they're trying to protect, right? So they're highly risk adverse. So the idea of putting something out that is maybe early to sort of rapid prototype or test it is kind of goes against protecting that brand. I've certainly seen that happen. So it forces them down this path of trying to build out massive, you know, wholly complete endeavors that then launch and miss the mark, right? So a lot of issues. And, you know, I think you guys have outlined those issues really well. And I'm kind of curious, you know, it's one thing to identify the issues, but Eric, you know, let's, let's flip the script a little bit. If you were a Titan of technology, how would you approach games? I mean, for me, it's always been about the city state model. It's about maintaining the independent independence and autonomy of a gaming operation. And I think Warner brothers actually as a, as an example has done quite well on that for both the console and the mobile side. Uh, one of the few media companies that have actually been effective. Um, you know, create a separate entity, operating entity with leadership and staff with gaming people. Um, you know, hiring talent is tough, you know, even in that circumstance, because a lot of people don't want to work for big media companies that make games. They want to work for a gaming company. Um, but if you position it in a way that it, it is independent, that's, it works, I think, to some degree. In Google's case, for instance, like you needed to start, I knew they were going to fail when I found out they didn't have a gaming studio, right? You cannot build tech and not build games. The only way platforms succeed is exclusive content that is unique to that platform that takes advantage of that platform almost full stop, right? Ooyah, we saw that with them. Um, and now we're certainly seeing that with Stadia. And the reason that I think Microsoft's going to be more successful on this side is because they have so much content built around it, right? Um, so 
Anyway, I think the guys at Warner Brothers are a good example. Steve Chang and the rest of those guys have done a very good job. I'm not going to comment any further on that. Um, and then also Microsoft obviously had a lot of success with that. I mean, not to, say, not to say that it wasn't hard and it wasn't challenging within Microsoft, but they managed to create quite a decent team um, and have maintained you know, pretty strong organization over the years. Uh, but again, organizations with a lot of creative autonomy um, and they have the ability to drive their vision and to be successful is probably where I would end up. Oh, and then the final point, you know, I do think the biggest challenge is managing creatives is one of the hardest parts in the business. And I think this is where most of these guys fall down. There's conflicting expectations from the movie and the tech people of what games should be and how they should operate. And I think ultimately to build the most successful games, you need to create autonomous teams that are passionate about what they do. And these teams are not building features on Google you know, mail, you know, or EE, you know, EE majors from MIT. This is a creative process run by passionate gaming dorks, right? And ultimately the technology IP enables the creative vision, not the other way around. So I think if you start with game companies in that mindset, then you can be successful from a big company perspective. But I think that's a very challenging thing to do within these broader orgs. Absolutely. I think those are some good examples, good points. Speaking of, of passion, uh, you know, nothing sort of elicits, elicits passion as much as politics. So not to get political, but we've seen a lot of things happening recently and would love to dive a little bit into just some of the geopolitical shenanigans that are starting to impact technology and games. And, you know, this is something that games have actually fortunately avoided for quite a while, serious political entanglements. I mean, we've had some hand-wringing around you know, new forms of entertainment and its impact on kids these days and all that good stuff. Uh, but things are changing. You know, one of the biggest stories that's happening right now is the growing rift between the US and China and how that's affecting technology companies, you know, most pointedly with the example of what's happening with TikTok. So do you have some thoughts on that and, and what, what this, how this might impact games, what our future looks like? Yeah, you know, I've been talking about in the podcast a little bit over the, over the last year or so about this. And I think there is a definite uh, fundamental unfairness between China and the West in, as it relates to the video game industry. You know, competitors like NetEase and Netmarble and particularly Tencent basically have carte blanche to buy whatever asset they want in the West. Um, and on the flip side, Western companies have actually no ability to not only acquire companies in the East, <laughs> but even to compete on the same playing field as Chinese games in Chinese markets because you know, the requirement of local sponsors and government approvals. And I, I don't want to get all Trumpian here, but it just really is not fair on how games are operated uh, between the two, two countries. Now, what we do know with pretty much fact is that China markets will probably never open up to Western companies in our lifetime. I, I just don't think that is the possible, <laughs> but we will see. Um, and the requirement of making these ventures in China uh, is, is, is very unprofitable, right? And even though you get a lot of press about how well things have done in the, in the East, my understanding is that the amount of money that is spent in order to bring those games to the East and the number of people that are like in the pockets of, of, of this revenue that's being generated, it's just not very profitable, right? So for example, like things like Marvel and Transformers and World of Warcraft, for instance, are huge successes in China. And I think press get crazy about the top line. But the understanding you pay distribution partners, you pay 
uh, your content partners, marketing, government officials, the president Z himself, I'm sure, is probably benefiting from this. But the ventures are actually very profitable. So it's more like a marketing exercise in marketing than it is like a profitable business venture. So, you know, I'm not a politician and I don't really have any solutions here. And maybe I am a politician because I have no ex- solutions here. But I think people looking into this, this, this unfairness is probably, uh, probably a decent idea. So back to TikTok. So I think this could be get it, the beginning of like some pushback on, you know, Chinese investment and or operation in the West, right? And the more I read about this, the more it's actually kind of less political and more like a real potential threat uh, to the privacy of, of, of the users in, in the U.S. and Europe and to any type of influence that, that they could do. You know, the amount of information that TikTok seems to be collecting is a bit egregious, right? And, and I think what a lot of politicians and others don't realize is that kids these days are opting into everything. They don't give a shit about privacy. Like, that is not in their lexicon at all. And it's like a privacy is an old man's game. And that's why I think once publish once like governments and, and, and people start to realize like exactly how much information is, is trend is moving across the world. Like I think there will be continue to be some more um, regulation uh, against Chinese companies. So anyway, that's kind of my take on it quickly. I'm not really too versed into what TikTok's doing, but uh, the more I read about it, the more I am worried. And I think the more chances are that more and more things will happen from, from Chinese perspective, affecting Tencent, NetEase, NetMarble, et cetera. We'll see. So do you see this sort of going beyond just TikTok then? Does this sort of embolden other countries to start taking their own moves? Or uh, does this even open the gate and, and make this a new sort of arena for, for countries to engage in? You know, we know India has started banning, banning some apps. Uh, you talked about China and the partners needing a license to be able to work in there. Sort of, do you see this going anywhere? Or is this just sort of standing up and trying to create a fair market? Yeah, you know, with all this scrutiny on Facebook and Google, Microsoft, Apple, etc. You know, why not go after companies in countries that are definitely working a quote unquote against us, you know, uh, I do want to stay out of the political arena, but I'm just not informed about much of this outside of video games. But I mean, is it possible that we could see a requirement for Eastern publishers to, you know, to do business with Western countries, Western publishers and countries. I don't know if that's likely. It's too complex, right? Dealing with, with countries in the West, because you know, obviously US is a huge market, but then you'd have to do a deal with like every distribution entity and all other countries in Europe. I don't know if that's that's like, but I mean they could say that US is, you know, the doors are not open in the US, like that's possible, right? Or more restrictions on the companies um, in terms of how they operate in the US, like what they're doing with TikTok. I think that's possible. But um, you know, we'll see. We'll see how much how this how this goes with TikTok, and we'll see if it has any more ramifications elsewhere. But again, with all the scrutiny on privacy and these type of things with our American companies, I got to imagine that it's ultimately going to, you know, that that gun, the barrel is going to be pointed at uh, Asian com- companies as well. Yeah, maybe I could just weigh in on how I think game studios should be thinking about this. Is that if you look in a historical context, right? That you have to think that with the current macro environment that tensions between US and China should increase significantly. And without getting political, again, just looking at the historical context in terms of what's happened from centuries ago in similar environments that we're in now, you have to think there's like a 90% plus chance that things between US and China worsen significantly, whoever's the president, right? 
So without casting judgment, I think the way to think about this is really to think through what are the potential implications and what are the opportunities. So if just play it through, trace route this through. So there's sort of the TikTok and Triller effect, but you know, there are there should be other opportunities out there as well. So just think through what could potentially happen if tensions increase. What are the possible scenarios from some backlash all the way to full parity? How does that potentially play out? What are then the potential opportunities for your game studio? That's that's how I would think about it. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective, Joe. Um, and I think that kind of brings us to, to the conclusion today. You know, Eric, Joe, I really appreciate your time and thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Uh, you never disappoint. And as you know, I, for one, I'm smarter for it. Um, you know, you guys mentioned opportunities, especially in the wrap up there, Joe. So speaking of opportunities, how could people, how can our audience find more of your content? They can uh, sign up for the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. Just go to deconstructoroffun.com. I also have a YouTube channel uh, to just look up game makers on YouTube. And I don't know, how can people find you, Eric? <laughs> That's basically it. Uh, you can always reach out directly and uh, if you have any uh, issues or questions. Okay, cool. great. Well, thank you both. and. To our audience, if you're a developer or a publisher looking to grow your business, then you can come visit me at exola.com and learn more about the tools and products we have to help your, your business grow. And with this, I think we're going to end this session, this part of the session and move into a live Q&A. So please come forward with your questions. We'd love to share. Thank you.